Bold Hill. And to talk about Bold it. Hill. A mysterious update. So the administrator said in this case that the uh, identity of the uh, bidder will remain confidential until closing. But they explicitly state that it's not the consortium made up of Glencore and Sagex. After hearing all of this, my question is, why would McGrath-Nickel not run an auction process to get the most amount of value as possible? There's clearly plenty of people who are interested in buying the asset. Whenever you see uh, something like this, you always question, well, who leaked this and what was their intention? This is the beginning of the end. The tiny structures that enable you to be alive unravel. Like an egg, they can't be uncooked. Right. When you have that urge to go closer to the mic, Trav, resist. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't do it. I won't do it. I can't hear myself when I... Trust me, you're getting hurt. Right, buddy, boy, it's end of the week. Welcome to spring. JD Trav, how are you, gentlemen? I'm doing well. How are you? I reckon you're looking sensational, if I may say so myself. <laughs> Trav, have you Thanks, not mate. washed your money in mine shirt? What I, the fuck? I haven't. My washing's piled up, mate. I'm too busy working. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've got to get some more because I'm bloody – I've got to rip the one every second day. I, I, I won't lie. I've doubled this one up. <laughs> well, I, was, I was hoping to um, – even if I wasn't wearing the money in mine shirt, to be wearing my hoodery hat. But then I keep remembering I sold it to Bryce Gower for $200. Yes. <laughs> Good racer. <laughs> right, boys. What have we got installed today? for the end of the week. We've got a good one. We've got a, um, we're going to touch on Fortescue. The revolving door that keeps on giving. Yeah. Uh, we've got a bit on Alita Resources, which people will remember as the owner of Bold Hill. And then what else have we got? We've got, you're, you're going to oh, do a bit of a dive on Old Teco. Old Teco, they've purchased a copper gold project in Newfoundland, so yep. we're going to get in Up the in weeds Canada. of that. Probably then, irre- irrelevant weeds of underground mining, considering it is purely an exploration play. But we'll get into that. Yeah, excited, we'll touch. Mate. We'll touch on our dear friends at Sayona, and then we've got a little segment on Next Gen, the the big developer of the Rook One uranium deposit in Canada. Very good. Right, let's get into it. Partners today, our great friends Terra Capital. Thanks to Dylan Kelly for the rare earths thing. That went absolutely off like a frog in a sock. That one. That was bloody sensational. <laughs> Yeah, if you, haven't, if you haven't watched that one, go back and watch it. It was great. Mm, I learned but, plenty. Oh, yeah. Well, we re-listened to it and obviously picked up on a lot of stuff that, you know, because there's so much information to consume and he'd done it so well. So it was it was really bloody good. I think it's a must listen if you're considering dabbling in the rare earths, you know, investing universe mm. because it's just so much noise but and very little signal. And I think Dylan does a great job of kind of articulating the, the pitfalls of um, of what to look out for in that space. Yeah, all the complexities in and around it, right? And yeah. bloody speaking of beers at one o'clock, we are catching up with Anytime Exploration Services. Seamus Murphy, we're meeting the man in the flesh. You just make the segues happen. Can't <laughs> wait. Can't <laughs> wait to bloody suck down a swan draft for lunch. Uh, anytime Exploration, anything, anywhere, Exploration. He's your man. So, boys, let's get into Fortescue. Uh, You would define it as a tumultuous week. You sure would. So last night, if people didn't see it, the CFO, Christine Morris, exited. That was only a few days after what we'd spoken about, Fiona Hick, the CEO, leaving. And then not on the back of that, yeah, the share price down 6%. Granted, they did write down a bit of value relating to their Ironbridge project as well. And on today's announcement, you've got the share price off another 5%. You've also got Guy DeBell who had, after five months, stepped down as CFO of FFI, but he was still on the board. He has now left the company and joined Tiven. So the the AFI have reported that um, Christine's tenure at the company was two months and that she's now the 11th executive to leave within three years at the company. Yeah. It's, mate, this is... Um 
a story that's kind of, it just gets juicier, I think, by the hour almost. There's mm. just something new that's popping up with Fortescue. There's so much coverage. Front page of the West today, not, not a favorable headline. There's um, some hilarious AFR articles out there. Um, comparing um, Twiggy to, to Al Pacino and um, the, the the photo comparison will flash up on the screen is um, is something to witness. Like the AFR, they report eleven uh, the 11th executive to leave in three years. I, I think the number could actually be higher than that. Um, let, let's pull up Fortescue's 2021 annual report. This is a document, keep in mind, that came out just two years ago. Let's look at the executives on the, the, the page of that report that says executive team. So I'm using their definition of the word executive here. Executive team. Um, and I think it's, let's just take a look at them. There's uh, 11 people on that slide. Let's, let's see where they are now. So Elizabeth Gaines, she um, has, has left her executive position as CEO, but she's still on the board. I'm going to put a, put a cross on her saying she's left the executive team. Ian Wells departed 31st of January this year for time with the family. Danny Goman left the director sales in uh, August 2022 to become senior advisor to the CEO, a role which she departed within six months' time in uh, February 2023. Derek Brown departed June 2022, and these days he finds himself working in Minres's lithium business, um, which is interesting. Tim Langmead left in November 2021. Linda O'Farrell left December 2022. Um, you know, her, her, her previous role as an executive there was a director of Fortescue People. And very interestingly, she's now running her own organizational culture business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Fernando Pereira, Pereira um, he departed in April 2022. Like Derek Brown, also finds himself working in Minres's lithium business these days. Alison Terry departed February 2022. Now, Ned on various boards and Rob Watson left in December 2021, is now retired. So, yeah, I mean, like nine of the 11, if you include Elizabeth Gaines, have, have left the executive team there. Um, and, and But let's just keep in mind that's not the, the only number because there's people who've come in to fill these executive positions that have left in short notices as well. So you've got to throw in Fiona Hick, Christine Morris, Felicity Gooding and Guy DeBell, who, who all came later and have since departed or announced their departure too. So in my numbers, that's... 13, not 11, 13, if you include Elizabeth Gaines. So you could go 12. Yeah. Elizabeth, that's a bit of a 50-50 one, I'd yeah. say. Yeah. I think one of the, the differentiators, and I haven't looked into this, is that you have you had FFI and then FMG as previously separate entities and some people joined FFI. But regardless, it is a super high you know, level of executive turnover. Mm. Yeah. Now, talk about a little presentation they put out as well, which I think was come from a uh, – they were presenting at a conference or – Perth Bow Forum, Perth, I think it was called, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, oh, look, to be honest, I couldn't get past the eighth page because I was thinking is this, it's going to be like this the whole way. They, they took Flano's Delta to the next level. Uh, it, was, it was like just big, impactful, bold writing slides about uh, – the overall theme is that humidity is going to be the death of humanity. <laughs> is is what I what I took from it. It was very. Um, if they wanted impact, they got it. But um, look, I couldn't even get through it. I assume I assume you guys flicked through the whole thing. Yeah, I did, mate. And I actually I want to read some slides because I think it's the only way to actually communicate what this presentation entailed. And when when I read through them and and when the money miners listen to it, we're also going to have some movie trailer music going along with it. <laughs> Is it um, something like a Christopher Nolan Inception Dark Knight sort of thing? It had that sort of feel to it. It really did. All right. So are we ready? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rip through a couple of slides here. 
The fossil fuel industry admits global temperatures are rising, but there's something they're not telling you, dot, dot, dot. Something else is rising much faster, and it's already killing people. Could your health already be at risk? Yes. Humanity is at risk now. Can you escape if you live in a city? Sure, until the air conditioning fails. You're young and work outdoors. Are you safe? You're at extreme risk. So are children, grandparents and people who are already ill. Why? Lethal humidity. This time, there's no cure. Uh, I'm going to fast forward to another section, by the way, because it's quite funny. Another section later in the pack. Your heart rate accelerates. Pounding headache, vomiting. Your heart pumps up to 400%, more blood than normal. Within minutes to hours, your body temperature will rise to a very dangerous 41 degrees Celsius. This is the beginning of the end. The tiny structures that enable you to be alive unravel. Like an egg, they can't be uncooked. You bleed internally. Your blood thickens. Your organs start to fail. Hallucinations. Seizures. Coma. Heart attack can happen at any time. You struggle to breathe if you've made it to hospital. You can have cardiopulmonary bypass. Your blood is drained, cooled, then put back in your body. Even if you get to a hospital, you're more likely to die than survive. If you don't make it to hospital, you die. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, that's, um, look, I'm not. I, I probably shouldn't be laughing because it is. It is probably climate change and decarb is a is a real thing. But just questioning the delivery and the execution. Yeah, of how this was put across. Well, the delivery I, was I, from me. No, no, <laughs> but that's effectively how everyone's interpreting it, the yeah, way you I'd, did it. I'd echo your statements there, Maddie. It's like a, a serious issue and it's a sort of bizarre kind of means of translating that, that issue and conveying that that issue. Oh, well, it's got people talking, so if they wanted that as an outcome, it's worked. Mm. If oh. you look at that from a marketing standpoint. It's pretty bizarre. I haven't seen anything like it come out of a mining company before. Um, yeah, it's, not, it's, it's doing the rounds on... Uh, social media and rightfully so because it's just not the sort of presentation you you expect to uh, read not the not the way of communicating an important message that you expect to see out of a 60 odd billion dollar company either so they went down a little bit i think they were down five percent or something they go they go ex-dividend next week yeah on monday don't they so i think think of the psychology of the uh the holder of of this stock who's maybe a bit attached to the franking credit um they go they go ex-dividend monday You saw it come off 5%. I think today it was 6%, the day the CEO left. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a turbulent time. I had, I had someone um, ask me the question today, is, is Fortescue vulnerable for the, for the first time in a long time, just from, you know, from, a, um, from, a, from a corporate activity perspective, are they vulnerable? I think the answer to this is still, still no, but there are some important points to discuss in relation to the dynamics of this company um, that are different. For, for the first time in you know, quite a while. Um, and why the question around vulnerability? Well, well, the lack of continuity of, of executives um, at, at this company, the major shareholder influence has now effectively been diluted by 50% um, given the, the personal separation there. I know they, they talk about still being aligned on decisions and that's, yeah. that's probably right, but, um, but just I'm just putting forward the case of vulnerability. 
Um, and then there's sort of, you know, the, the ramp up uncertainty with iBridge, will it meet expectations or not? All, all of that sort of adds to the the line of thinking that, you know, Fortescue uh, has heightened vulnerability relative to other periods of time. I still think that they're not vulnerable. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I don't think that they're vulnerable given what you've outlined. The, the point on IronBridge is interesting though because a lot of other executives, you know, would have their head on the on the chopping block for a project of this scale that was over time and over budget and such. But, I mean, it's not even the same executive team from when this <laughs> went into, you know, final investment decision through production to where we are now. So that's just not the case. And that was another reason the, the stock was down. It was the same day, you know, and amongst the annual report that the, the write-down was announced. So it'd be interesting if you could break out what people were selling it down for. How much was it for the changes at the executive level, the, the write-down and Ironbridge not going as well as they'd hope, you know, but... Seeing this many people leave um, very suddenly and on short durations just poses the question. Yeah. So something we'll never know the answer to. Bold Hill, guys. Bold Hill. Keen to talk about it. Bold Hill. A mysterious update. So for those wondering what we're talking about, Bold Hill is one of the few producing lithium mines in the state. The owner is Alita Resources. So they actually went under in mid-2019. They were since delisted from the ASX and they've still got a Singaporean listing which has been in suspension for a long time now. So a couple of days ago it came out that uh, Glencore was actually bidding for Alita. So it came up in an article via The Australian and that had that outlined that Glencore along with SageX Capital would buy the debt of Alita and look to relist the company at a valuation of about $1.8 billion. Can I Can I ask a real dumb question sure, that mate. I don't know the answer to? Is Bald Hill breaking rock today? Yes. I'll just – it'd be interesting to just talk to someone that works there right now. It's from, Isn't it mysterious that, like, it's – From what just, I understand, it's at a significantly, like, reduced capacity. But there is people working there as we speak. Yeah, because there was a whole kerfuffle about them selling spodumene at a far below market rate so that they, you know, didn't have to pay the full royalty for lithium spodumene. Exports. Mm. It's, it's like a bit of a CIA operation. <laughs> yeah, so um, the article read really interestingly. You get the, the impression, and it was kind of explicitly stated in, in certain parts, that Glencore weren't getting any traction. So you get the you could kind of infer that somebody from the bidding side had perhaps leaked some documentation because they weren't getting traction with the administrators. That's McGrath Nickel. So the article stated that they would go in, they'd buy the debt, and then once all was said and done, there'd be 15% equity owners in the company. And the you know that sort of implies that the previous equity holders wouldn't be completely wiped out, which would be music to the ears of the, the brokers who are paying legal bills at the moment to you know kind of ensure that their uh, legal bills aren't going, you know, aren't spent in vain, and that they do maintain some equity ownership. And then yesterday we got another update. So the headline for this one was Alita's Bold Hill will be sold to an unnamed buyer, says administrator. So what they outlined is that the company would be placed into liquidation and then that would allow the administrator to enter an agreement to sell the assets to a secret bidder, which is kind of weird. And really. this came out, so McGrath Ethicals is the, the, the receiver at 
uh, who, who, who posted this. And they're, they're not a nickel company. It's, it's, it's <laughs> no, no. N-I-C-O-L because when you first told me, I'm like, who's the nickel mob that's buying? <laughs> that's <laughs> no. that's no. lithium in your Ho- Hopefully yeah. you never have to deal with an administrator or you know, receivers and managers. They're the people you don't want to have to talk to. Yeah. So some people <laughs> might be wondering what, what's the sort of difference between an administrator and a liquidator. Essentially when an uh, administrator has a hold of the company, they're still trying to run it and get it get it going. It's got some sort of protections around it, whereas the goal of a liquidator is to close the company and sell the assets. So there's also another role, um, and that's one of uh, receivers and managers. So yeah, they have to pull that apart. At some stage. Yeah, plenty of other intricacies in and yeah. around it. But as as those sort of titles relate to what's going on at the moment, that's that's the sort of definitions. So the administrator said in this case that the uh, identity of the uh, bidder will remain confidential until closing, but they explicitly state that it's not the consortium made up of Glencore and Sagex. So they also say it's a completely unrelated party, which is kind of relevant because you've seen Ostroid and, you know, related parties, directors in common try and bid, and that's what FERB rejected when we first spoke about it a month or so ago. So after hearing all of this, my question is, why would McGrath-Nickel not run an auction process to get the most amount of value as possible? There's clearly plenty of people who are interested in buying the asset. It is, you know, granted a bizarre situation in which a company and the value of a company goes up massively after going into administration. That is a very unusual case, but it's just going to be fascinating to see who the bidder is and what price is paid, and hence if the previous equity holders would get any return. It's worth looking at this one with um, curious eyes, I think, JD. I mean, when that article in The Australian came out, um, it was a bit odd for a lot of reasons. The headline, Glencore bids for lithium mine, Alita. It was sort of like whenever you see... Uh, something like this, you always question, well, who leaked this and what was their intention? And one theory you could have is like, would would, would Glencore have any like um, incentive to, to to leak this line of thinking because they felt like they weren't getting let in to look at the process? So I wonder. And now and then you get this announcement that um, that a deal's done, but the bid, the bidder is unnamed. Um, it, it does pose the question: what sort of process has been run? to maximise value for, for, for creditors and if there is some residual claim for also for, for equity, if it, if it if I mean, I know, I know equity holders think that they have some claim to it as well. So it just it, it poses the question um, about the process here. I, I'm, I'm curious to get more information and really find out how how like how things have unfolded here and who this bidder is and, and what sort of process has been run by um, McGrath-Nickel. Did it, the documentation sort of inclined that the deal was done? It did, yeah, yeah. which is... Fascinating. I couldn't agree more with what you said there, Trav. So, Maddie, I've got one for you. Now, you love uh, prediction, and I think this one this one will be good fun because we shouldn't have to wait too long for the outcome. We should find out mm. fairly soon what the outcome is. The question is, who is the mysterious bidder? Well, bidder, so it didn't say bidders, so you could say one party. You, Yeah, that's an interesting take. Are you implying it could be a JV type? Well, if it was a... Yeah, maybe the the bidders would be bidders as a JV, and they'd be still known as a bidder. So yeah, I it think could, that would it could be, right. be still. So look, look, who's who's in the area that sparks to mind? You, you've got the, no, one's in, no one's in um, trading hold, by the way. So can't be an ASX co. Mm, can't be an ASX co. No, they'd announce it. I'd imagine it'd be a, yeah. Oh, so that because I'll see because you got so technically West Farmers would go into a trading hold, but. SQM mightn't unless SQM were one of them. West, West Farmers might not. If it's if the ultimate acquisition price is sort of deemed immaterial, 
relative to the existing West value, farmers. then they, they wouldn't have to. Mm, so that, that, I guess that brings in West Farmers, SQMs are possible. Yeah. Like, Min, this, would this be, this would be material for Min Res? Maybe on the... Yeah, on it would the, have to be. Yeah, they're, they're talking about spinning this thing out into a $1.8 billion company... Like the the other is natural that, is that guess, only but if the company deems it material themselves? There's some threshold test, I believe. Yeah. I think it's about five percent. I can't remember. As in, as in the value of the transaction to your market cap, yeah, or EV yeah. or something. About that, yeah. Yeah, right. The, oh. the other natural guess would have been Allchem, who had we we discussed earlier in the week picking up tenements in and around mm. Bold Hill. So, mm. Albemarle. Yeah. yeah, I mean, could be they're oh. they're busy in WA. Yeah, I suppose because our Albemarle were, even though they're downstream, they were still going for Lion Town by themselves. So they've a track record of putting in a bid. Mm. So pretty much it could be fucking anyone. <laughs> sort of got so pretty much if we we have to get it right from this list. So you got West Farmers SQM, you got Minres, you got Allchem, you've got uh, Albemarle. Um, oh geez, would you throw developing as a bloody specky? Yeah. Yeah, I, I. But then that'd be in a trading hole because definitely material to them. Whoever it is, yeah, I, I'm just keen to find out, keen to learn more. There's a lot happening in that area. A lot of companies want to have a, a bit of a say in what, what's going on in that region. Um, and hopefully the administrators have maximised potential value on the table. We've got some more news from one of our favourite companies, Sayona. So this, um, <laughs> this bit of news. The way you say it. <laughs> so we found out that the uh, interim CEO, James Brown, who was previously the non-exec director, became interim CEO when Brett Lynch stepped down with immediate effect <coughs> earlier in the week. He's actually got a, another job, so we didn't mention it at the time, but he is the MD at Marilla. We're not yeah. talking about Five Inch here. It's nothing to do with Five Inch. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's very uh, Elon Musk-like of him to take on multiple managing director slash CEO type roles, and we just hope he can manage that workload. The company, Marilla, that is, put out an update saying that uh, his work at Sayona won't impact his work at Marilla. Mm. Well, I was talking to a very reputable person on in the finance industry, research, research analyst, about the Sayona thing, probably provided a different perspective for me, and I guess you boys might be able to dial in on this one. It's, um, you know, about the Sayona, the big, the big drop after Brett Lynch resigned for personal reasons. Look, what's it say about the company? His his view was, look, it is it is limited to the boardroom and from, the, I guess, discussions with Piedmont and as well, ramp up was going good and it sort of opened up the opportunity for maybe consolidation of Piedmont and Sayona to, I guess, get rid of that horrendous offtake that is in place from Sayona to Piedmont. What do you boys think of that? What's your take for it? It's a, it's a different perspective than... How he's presented it the other day. So, I, you go, Trev. Uh, I, I just I push back on the consolidation rationale because it's a horrendous offtake for Sayona yeah. for the benefit of Piedmont. Um, you know, they get to buy um, their concentrate for nine, an upper bound of nine hundred bucks a ton. That's great for them. Um, why would you want to experience more of the the cost by consolidating? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there'd be a bit of value de- destruction. Yeah, there. it was for, also interesting for, paid, for, paid for Piedmont. Yeah, yeah, and they had put out an update, which gave us a bit more colour, which we we can get into at some point on how um, how the offtake and all that's going earlier this week. Mm. So it wasn't all, it wasn't all doom and gloom anyway. Mm. Um, yeah. All pending pending ramp up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, well, that's the other bit, right? Not all. I wouldn't say this sort of thing is limited to boardroom when you've got the overhang of successful ramp up. You know, which is 
like people are still waiting to find out yeah. how's ramp up really going. So I, I'd say limited to the boardroom, that'd be a valid perspective if you had, you know, consistent cash flows and it was some temporary issue. But this is one where you don't know what the long-term cash flows are going to be because ramp up is still ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. Maddie, you've done a bit Very of a deep good. dive on the Orteco transaction. Yeah. So Orteco, they've been uh, sitting dormant for a while. They had the big rise a few years ago when North American gold was the thing. Yep, they had the Pickle been, Crow asset up there. Yeah, much to many companies' demise. Two point eight million ounce high grade inferred resource in Ontario. Uh, so yeah, they've just been subject to the sh- share market dynamics of uh, junior gold explorers getting absolutely hammered. So they were up to twenty cents and then crept all the way back down to two. So they're acquiring the Green Bay Copper Gold Project in Newfoundland, Canada. So pretty much the bloody far northeast of Canada. Far east, east. Yep. Um, so 39 million tonne resource at 1.8% copper and half a gram per tonne gold. So uh, diversifying away slightly from their being gold producers and we go, and you'd know by the, the board and management, you've got you've got Steve Parsons, Michael Naylor, Ray Shorix, all the, it's all the Bellevue, all the Bellevue team were on as non-executive directors and uh, there's a few board changes that we'll, that we'll go through. So... Look, fifty million bucks they're paying for it. Thirty-five million in cash up front, and fifteen million shares. But then they have to pay another seven and a half million cash in eighteen months, and another seven and a half million shares in eighteen months. So sixty sixty-five million dollar consideration. And this company, uh, Rambler, was went into administration at the start of the year, or the Canadian version of liquidation. They applied for creditor protection because they. I think one one thread I looked at, they didn't pay an eight hundred thousand dollar bill, and pretty much uh, that was it. Filed for filed for the liquidation bankruptcy over there. So they were so, flagging, I think, seven thousand tons of copper to be produced in, I believe, twenty twenty two. But obviously, things yeah. didn't work out so well for them. Yeah, and we'll go we'll go through why. So uh, first thing, I'll, I'll, we'll get into the weeds about what this mine is and what it looks like. But I guess to be clear, because I'll probably go and go, get a bit undergroundy and. Uh, Everything and like, like, I guess Patriot was a good example where we're we're looking at all the mining uh, practicalities and of it. But look, it's all bloody 10, 12 years away. It's an this is this is an exploration company, um, and they've specifically uh, specifically said that in the in the investor call. Like they're saying, we're not we don't have plans to turn it on. We want to find value via the drill bit. So yeah, that's the that's the right message when you've had the myriad of. Um of production, you know, Australian companies go to North America, try mine and, and not mm. have success. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's the same as what Silver Lake have taken that approach with yeah. um, Sugar Zone. Yeah, now. correct. So like yeah, turning yeah. it off, we're, we're drilling out to find express. Yeah, but but the reason I like to go into the underground mining practicalities because you can just never, besides the share price appreciation, you can't get any cash flow from exploration unless you own a fucking drilling company. You need to mine it. So it needs to be mined at mm. some point. So you can't just explore forever. And that said, the company does flag that they have picked up $250 million in existing infrastructure. So that includes yeah. a processing plant. There's you know, the development. There's a shaft there. Well, there's the, the decline's down to 950 metres and uh, – it said it needs to be dewatered, but they've said it's. They said in the investigation it was full, already dewatered. Um, the the processing plants are half a million ton per annum, uh, like a float, copper flotation plant. So look, that's for the scale of what we're going to show you. That's probably pretty small. So look, if you if you got one and a half percent through the mill, you'd 
your gross yield, 7,500 tonne of copper. So that's probably not going to cut the mustard long term if they do turn this on. But as I said, it's not... Um, not in the forefront of their mind at the moment. Right, without, without getting into the weeds about underground mining, I guess, as I said, it's probably in, irrelevant in this exploration investment case, but look, let's look at what they're planning. So they're planning to drill the fuck out of it for two years, chuck, chuck in two exploration declines, 700 metres each. I think they've they got 40,000 metres in this program and they're planning another 70. Another 60,000 metres in phase two. Oh, yeah. Yep. I guess look at, look at how... I guess what this costs, and I guess they've allocated it accordingly for for phase one. This raising appears to be only for phase one. So because if you go fourteen a seven hundred meter decline, like at the moment, decline, exploration declines are getting quoted at twelve thousand bucks a meter in Australia. They used to be like God five, six, or seven, but now just because of this price environment, I don't I don't know. I can't speak for what these contract rates would be for Canada, but and then that. 40,000-metre diamond drilling program, that's, you quote, about two, 200 bucks, 250 bucks a metre for that. So there's... Underground diamond drilling. Yeah. So there's there's your 8 mil plus, oh, what's that, 700, 700 metres at 12 grand a metre. So that's another eight and a half. For, that's just the just for the drilling and the decline. Then you've got, then you've got heating, you've got heating, you've got um, like the extra extra workers there, like all the all the infrastructure and everything. So so let's look at the, I guess, they've the, put the old comparison up. So there, there's a pretty bloody deep mines in Canada. Look at <laughs> look at this. So you've got the La Ronde, Ag- Agnico's La Ronde Evolutions, Red Lake, Glencore's Kid Creek, and then you've got the Ming Mine, which is what Orteco have bought. Spot the difference, boys. Oh, I love this slide. There's not one difference, but there's a couple of significant ones. They mine bloody deep in Canada. Mm. I love this slide. It's uh, Yeah, also the angle. Of the, the the dip, yeah. So yeah. that's it's the plunge. The plunge. How you refer to that? Yeah. Right. So you look at um, you look at where they've got the shafts in at Red Lake, and you know the Glencore ore body is very, very vertical. Um, vertical plunge. It appears from that cross section. They could have bloody who knows. So, but for the- when you're talking about putting shafts, so they've got a shaft in at 650 meters. I think Orteco says it's at 650. We looked at the 2022 presentation from Rambler. They said it was down to 500. So. Um, unless they extended it, couldn't say them extended it with no cash. But let's just work on six fifty. So they're at nine fifty at the moment. But what happens with plunging ore bodies is to put a long term shaft in. You quickly move far away from it, and you still have to just keep trucking it up to it because you can't. If you could bend a shaft like a bloody <laughs> fishing hook, it'd be uh, bloody handy, but it just doesn't work that way. The so sh- the shaft works when you're plunging like as vertical yeah. as possible. Yeah, so that kid creates you for Big bulk ore bodies, and yeah. you know you might have. Yeah, multi, like you'd have one shaft, and because the further the deeper they go, the further you get away from it, and you can't to horizontally tram to it on the level to develop that far is just not practical. Yeah, um, the ore bodies at La Ronde and Kid Creek are much more, you know, amenable to yeah. shaft stuff. So, and but the, if you got the shaft at six fifty, it is that's six hundred and fifty meters. You don't have to haul it. I assume that is a hoisting shaft that is still in operation. I didn't get any info on that. So, is it the first time, Matty, you've seen a um? A mine that's nearly a kilometre deep, sort of um, marketed as shallow. Marked as shallow, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have a look at it, yeah. So for those listening on, on the audio, the other three mines, one goes to 3,100, one to 2,600, yep. and the other to 3,000 metres. So yeah, I know that Laurent mine, from what I've heard, geotechnically at that depth is um, yeah, very, very seismic um, due to the depth. So one of the – there's a few of them around. Kerr Addison's another one. Um, 
I'll forget. Yeah, but they go they go pretty deep there. That's why that's why they've got shafts. So and there were a couple of changes at a at a corporate board level, right? Mm, so Steve Parsons is going from non-executive director to managing director. Darren Cook, he'll remain as the CEO and Michael Naylor is going from non-executive director to executive director. So, and obviously I Google these things because I'm like, what the fuck's the difference between a non-exec and a zec? Pretty much an executive director is uh, part of the day-to-day running of yes. the operation where a non-executive director is, is not. My Same co- as my- a non-executive chairman and an executive chairman. i tell you what, I, what question I've got for you that I don't think we'll be able to answer clearly is, why does an exploration company need both an MD and a CEO? Mm. <laughs> Ooh, we'll have to ask him that one. <laughs> Let's break apart the uh, the transaction costs. So you touched on it there, Maddie. There, so fifty know, million they, total. They did, they did mention that uh, thirty five million in cash and fifteen million in shares up front. So that's what this fifty million dollar raise they're doing is for. So that's for the cash component, and then they will do a direct placement for that fifteen million worth of shares, but. Yes, the interesting one when you've got a time-based payment, time-based consideration payment to follow. So $7.5 cash has to be paid on the 18-month anniversary of completion of the deal and another 7.5 shares. Um, So, look, the 7.5 shares could be – that's a – correct me if I'm wrong, that's just a direct placement shareholder vote – uh, but to raise that seven hundred million, seven and a half million in cash, that requires new equity raise and new equity, new equity raise. Yeah, yeah. So one of the terms is that if the shareholders don't approve it, they just have to make the payment in cash. To your yeah. point, Maddie, on um, on the script being attractive to the vendor, if that's the narrative, you want to look for escrow in the deal terms. You want to look for the vendor is happy to escrow their shares for two years' time, something along those lines. You do a control F escrow. Comes and up. you did, didn't you, Trav? Comes up with nothing. Yeah, would it be bizarre for a company in administration? Oh, yeah. It, yeah, yeah couldn't, maybe, couldn't, couldn't find anything if they were escrowed or, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I, don't, we don't know. I think that's the like the thing you just have to factor in with this stuff is like if there's not an escrow, then you just, you're left trying to have to deduce the real intentions of the vendor. And yeah. is that more overhang as well? Yeah. So the, I yeah. guess the question we're posing is once uh, Rambler get a hold of these $15 million worth of shares, are they going to be an immediate seller to realise the cash? Yeah, who, know, who knows, right? Like, I don't know. Maybe they, they – like, yeah, it's, there's reports that it was a hotly contested asset and the script consideration was um, an important part of the party who won because they wanted up, um, exposure to the upside. But when that's yeah. the narrative – you want to see escrow. <laughs> like, mm. <laughs> it just gives you certainty as a shareholder that you can be alongside them and, yeah. not, and not having to bid up their stock, is it? Look, that time-dependent payment in 18 months, they have to pay that not based on production and will be mm. forced to raise raise new equity for it. So and we'll yeah. go through, I guess, where the proceeds are going and how much I think that that's going to actually cost to do it. It's hard It's hard to think that um, there could be any worse time for a gold exploration company to raise money than it is right now. So um, hopefully hopefully it's easier in 12 months' time. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's, that's true. And, yeah, they might be able to raise it a lot better value yeah. than they Copper are. Copper company, Trav. Oh, company. sorry. Copper gold. Right, let's talk about the ore body. So you look at a bit of a cross-section we'll bring up here. So they've got they've got this upper VMS zone, which is the high thinner and higher grade and then this lower football zone. So that's the bulk area. And you see on the thing here, the decline's gone down significantly further on the upper VMS, the higher grade section, hasn't progressed on the lower football zone. That lower, lower football zones are like lower, lower grade but big, big tonnages. Um, any questions on my bloody rant, boys? No, that was great, mate. There would be a few questions that I'd pose to the company that I'd love to sort of hear 
Trav, you touched on it being a quite a competitive process. It'd be interesting oh, to that's remiss, yeah, I don't. <laughs> it'd be interesting to see, you know, what what sort of got them over the line. Um, we could go a bit deeper, I guess, on on Ramblin, what it was exactly that put them into administration. But it's good to see that these guys have come in. They've got a very different outlook on what they're going to do. They're not going to try and turn it on. And like one of you guys said earlier, it's kind of reminiscent of what a lot of the um, Aussie companies did. And we'd really want to hear the plan as to what really differentiates them and why they're not going to fall into the same sort of pitfalls that many Mm. of the Aussie companies did when they went to Canada. And I think they've got a pretty good plan around that. They're not going to go try and turn it on straight away. They've got a huge drill program, very sort of similar to what um, Silver Lake did at Sugar Zone, except they're not going and turning it on, having that 18 months or two years of, you know, mediocre performance before, you know, putting it on care and maintenance, saying we're going to put $35 million into the asset itself, yeah. develop it, drill it out and everything. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a bear on just Aussie gold mining in Canada. I yeah. just think we don't have mm-hmm. a competitive advantage operating there, and so I'm just a, a perma-bear on that, <laughs> especially when we buy it from the Canadians who went broke mining from it. I just, I just don't think that we have a competitive advantage trying to do that. Yeah. yeah. One thing I think the the company might say to, to Canada that is that the asset is in itself a sort of option on copper prices. You know, yeah. just a, yeah. a good way to sort of but play it, that. It's very, very dependent on a the market getting the market getting uh, getting better because. You know, I suppose where everyone's far before, especially with a time-dependent asset, the market's actually got worse, and they've got to the point they're raising at even lower money just to just to pay the next milestone payment. So, if if we're somewhere near the bottom right now for juniors, uh, God, you'd hope we are because it's a bloody shit house out there for them. You'd hope that the market turns around, they build a resource, and then they're raising at a much higher price and nowhere near as dilutive for shareholders because that's, what's, kill, that's what kill, what's killing all these companies at the moment is raising at these bloody two-year lows. So let's hope that uh, hope they bloody make it work. That's it's it, mate. It's some bloody good stuff. Next-gen, boys. One what? for the uranium bulls. Mm. It sure is. So some people might wonder what we're talking about. Next-gen, so they're a Canadian uranium developer, they're progressing the Rook One Did you project. say Canadian uranium? Mm. Uranium? Did he say? I thought you said Canadian uranium. We'll have to play it back. We'll have to play it back. So their project is in Saskatchewan, kind of in the middle of Canada, and they've got the, the Arrow deposit, which is 3.7 million tonnes at 3.1%. 3.1%. Yeah. So it's it radioactive. Is, it's massive. <laughs> they've got their primary listing on the TSX, but they've got a secondary listing on... Um, the New York Stock Exchange, as well as CDIs here in in Australia on the ASX. Did Langers so, mention these in our chat with him? They did. Yeah, yeah. he yeah. did. Yes. So on a fully diluted market, on, on a fully diluted basis, they've got a market cap of three point eight billion Canadian. So just massive. The um, the company sort of markets the project as the largest development stage uranium mm. project globally, and I think this sort of checks out. Like you said, the guys at Terra know about it. I think a lot of natural resource investors would say that that sort of statement is is fairly accurate. So it's been a bit of a, a mystery to me why like this, like this company often gets referred to as literally the best undeveloped project in the world because of it's ha, like how amazing its grade is relative to the peer group of undeveloped uranium projects just like night and day. Um, but it's been a mystery to me why it's sort of just um, not in in development yet why it hasn't been picked up by a, a corporate or and it's and it's not not in development yet. Is that all related to, to permitting, JD? Permitting would be a huge, huge deal. This is this is a uranium mine. Uranium mines all around the world. Well, this is a to be uranium mine, 
and uranium assets all around the world have been notoriously hard for a long time to get into development. And as well as that, the uranium market hasn't been in such a sweet spot for the better part of the last decade. So I think that all plays into it. So what the actual news is today, they have um, come out with an announcement that they've done a deal with Queens Road Capital as well as Solpats to raise US $110 million in an unsecured convertible debenture. So unsecured convertible debenture, that's a bit of a mouthful. The unsecured part just means that there's no collateral backing it and convertible debenture is, you know, something we'll also call a con note. It means it's yeah. a debt instrument that can be turned into equity at a predetermined Price. So US $70 million is coming from QRC, who are also actually TSX listed. And um, by inference, the remainder is coming from Sol Pats. And a funky part of the deal, it's a sort of side transaction, is that Sol Pats are buying 8.7 million shares of NextGen off of QRC. So the notes carry a 9% coupon over five years. Also a sort of another interesting quirk is that two-thirds of the interest is payable in cash, and one-third is payable in shares, which are issuable at a price that equals the 20-day VWAP. So obviously we touched on it being convertible. Um, the, the set price is at a 30% premium to the five-day VWAP. Um, and the, the last sort of detail around the, the announcement is that NextGen do have an option to redeem the notes on specific terms in the future. So for a cash position for NextGen, they previously had Canadian $89 million, this US $110 million will get them at a pretty pretty healthy cash balance. And to your point earlier, Trav, permitting is what we're waiting for. Just reading this, JD, Queens Road Capital Convertible Undeveloped Project, I'm pretty sure we saw them pop up doing a very similar thing with Adriatic. Adriatic, we did. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. You, you were um, showing me this company the other day and just you've been monitoring the the trades and you sort of you're looking at some anomalous volume what looked like anomalous mm. volume there and sort of wondering like share price is going up there's a bit more activity so so the, those cdis the aussie listing has had a bit of a tick up in volume over the past few weeks you know it barely used to trade and that's sort of ticked up and you've also had sort of good rhetoric come out around the the uranium in general the spot uranium price and then in and around what permitting could look like and timing of permitting maybe people are starting to to warm to it Hopefully, it's one of those projects you'd love to see. You'd love to see come on them. Yeah, the, the impact on the uranium market would be, you know, it can't be understated. Beautiful. Love Got a couple work. couple sponsors to to thank as we wrap up the, the Friday oh, afternoon. We're about to go beer, have beers with a couple of them yeah. too. <laughs> Thanks a lot to Terra Anytime Exploration Services, K Drill, Top Drill, and JP Search. I thought I'd just let you do all of them, JD. Yeah, yeah. You had me out to out to roost there. Uh, Thanks a lot, it. guys. Beautiful. Cheers, money miners. Have a great weekend. Woo-hoo. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation and needs.